Hello, my name's David Dunning, and welcome to The Fast Track, a podcast about LNER. We're here at York Station at the moment as we look back on the history of the brand, which first came out in 1923. So here we are at the historic and beautiful station, which is, of course, the gateway to a major destination on the current LNER line. That is the city of York, of course, famous for its minster and its shambles. What we're going to do today is meet up with Bob Gwynn. He's an associate curator at the National Railway Museum. He knows all about LNER 1923 and also David Flesher as well who's a commercial director of LNER 2023 and a very warm welcome to York we've just been down at the railway station uh, just a short walk up Lehman Road is, of course, the iconic National Railway Museum, home to locomotives and beautiful collections related to the railways. Explore the stories, the places, the engineering marvels, everything behind the railways, the way they were built and the way they were run and the way they are now. And one of the standout exhibits has to be the steam locomotive Mallard from an earlier age of LNER. The National Railway Museum in York is also home to Bob Gwynn, who is an associate curator and an expert on the LNER, the London and Northeastern Railway, as it was back in 1923 when it was formed. The government decided instead of nationalising the railways, they'd group them into four main groupings, in the intention being you'd have less competition internally in those areas, there'd be ge- geographical groupings, and therefore effectively the government could once again step aside having controlled the railways through the First World War. So they, they produced the grouping under Geddes. It was his plan. The LNER came out of that process. The um, jury's out on the grouping. Uh, the companies themselves were almost unmanageable. The LMS was widely regarded as unmanageable on the West Coast. The LNER did very well, but they had very tight management controls. But what it didn't do was it didn't help innovate. Actually, if you were shareholders in those uh, companies, then you really didn't get your money's worth. You didn't get very much back at all. Most shareholders effectively lost money through the lifetime of the companies. And there wasn't any capital for investment. And that's what the railways needed. And government at that stage, of course, was still thinking of the railways as effective transport monopolies. So it meant that you didn't get much innovation on the railways in that period of time. And you didn't get things like you did abroad, like electric trains, diesel trains and so on. You tended to stick with good old steam passenger services and freight services also uh, extremely slow. Almost an everywhere-to-everywhere approach to transport, which at that stage was gradually falling apart, certainly into the 1930s. I mean, investment went into the roads from government, uh, so you got all the trunk roads programme being built. By 1935, something like 250 towns had bypasses. One of the apprentices of Doncaster was W.O. Bentley, whose name, of course, is famous with the Bentley cars, and he was testing his on the dual carriageway, which is the bottom end of the A1. That's funny, isn't it? Because you get the impression that it was a time of great progress because of perhaps a few projects like Mallard. 
Well, yeah, the LNER had more four-wheeled and six-wheeled carriages in service than any of the big four. And in fact, Gresley found his way around that. That's the chief mechanical engineer for the LNER. He found his way around that by basically putting two four-wheeled carriages on one underframe. And it meant you ended up with uh, suburban services where the top half of the carriage was very old. The bottom half was quite modern with decent bogies and things. But fundamentally, it wasn't much of a service. I mean, it delivered, but it didn't deliver in the way that commuters elsewhere might, were already getting, you know. I mean elsewhere, I mean overseas. That's all to do with the capital they had to throw at the, the issues they had. Was LNER any worse off than, say, Southern? Because Southern at the time were electrifying. They did Brighton Main Line and the Portsmouth Main Line. LNER was a lot worse off because of the trade recession that came in in the 1920s. And, of course, most of its earnings came from freight. And most of the freight uh, earnings came from coal. And there was a big slump in coal. So you end up with a situation where they really don't have the money to innovate and modernise some of their services. So people like Gresley hold the fort by developing steam to its maximum degree. But you could argue at the point where he's doing that, actually the technology is moving on. Mm. So as we have this streamlined steam locomotive on the East Coast Main Line, attracting a lot of publicity and a, and a lot of uh, uh, people's interest, but meanwhile there are fast, efficient electric trains running to Portsmouth. Yeah, the yeah. southern re region, yeah, they carried on developing their third rail electrification and effectively becoming the outer suburbs to London, mm. um, which... Uh, paid their bills very well yeah. and it meant that the government actually introduced a scheme to um, it was basically aimed at allevi alleviating unemployment but it was where the uh, companies could get capital um, they only had to pay the capital back with no interest payments Southern took that and, and extended their electrification whereas the LNER took it and built a few more A4s and they put the platforms outside York Station for example basically um, they did tinkering as opposed to genuine uh, steps forward. There probably wasn't the golden age of rail travel in the 30s that everybody thought there was. Absolutely. I mean, to say uh, Flying Scotsman is famous for its non-stop run, but it's only doing 47 miles an hour. Mm. The, the winter service stopped three times in the same schedule, so it doesn't speed up because it's going non-stop. What kind of service would you have had on the East Coast Main Line through York to Edinburgh and London then in the 30s? You'd have a, a decent network of expresses. It would, of course, take longer than it does now by quite a considerable margin. If you're travelling on expresses, OK, you could expect at a certain time to get on an express train and sit down and have a dinner between here in Newcastle or here in Edinburgh. So you'd get that experience it would be slower and um, kind of more smelly because there'd be more smoke around <laughs> and uh, and you'd end up um, having to time your journey much more than you have to think about it these days because um, you know there'd only be so many services and it would take longer. Bob Gwynn from the National Railway Museum there. Well, one thing that is very interesting is comparing the way that LNER 1923 and LNER 2023 approached marketing. And it seems that there are one or two things that are pretty similar. The only difference being, of course, back 100 years ago, there was no social media or internet to play with. There were posters and film. And LNER in the 1930s was very good at making use of those tools. Brand management was something that 
you know, Dandridge and Teasdale on the LNER, almost invented, really. I think there's elements of the old LNER which those old members of that company in the 30s would actually recognise being done today. Mm. Uh, and, of course, most of all, they'd sit down and think, this is an astonishingly fast journey. People always knew they were travelling LNER and the high prestige services, the hope was, of course, it would rub some of that prestige off on the more lowly services. And then to cap it all, of course, they went for celebrity endorsement. You know, every train that left uh, King's Cross on the start of the Flying Scotsman service in the summer was waved off by a celebrity. It's a very modern approach. Somebody like him, I could think him sitting down in LNR's headquarters today and say, well, what are you doing? And he'd understand it, even if he'd never heard of social media or computers or whatever. The, the degree of connections that, that can get from those other approaches to mm. advertising and marketing... Uh, and the, the penetration down to the passenger level is really quite remarkable. And, of course, the l of old would have attempted this through their magazine, which they sold at the, all their newsagents. And many thanks to Bob Gwynn, Associate Curator at the National Railway Museum, for giving us an insight into the LNER of 1923 to 1948. The railways were nationalised, of course, then, so that was the end of the first phase of the LNER brand. But fast forward to 2018, and it's back again for the East Coast Mainline franchise. So I popped down to their head office in Skeldergate in York to speak to the commercial director, David Flesher, and to uh, discuss some of the similarities when it comes to marketing the brand that there are with uh, the team that would have done the same job back in the 30s. I think it's safe to say for David and the LNER team of 2023, it's a lot easier in a way because we're not talking about a few crack express trains. We're talking about a fleet of Azumas running half-hourly services to all sorts of destinations. You know, we're fortunate that as LNER has developed and progressed, you know, it's continued to, you know, to expand and grow and we have more and more destinations. I mean, we, we go to Middlesbrough's, Harrogate's, Lincoln's, you know, places that we've never been to before, much greater frequency. The, you know, the, the opportunities that we've got as a marketeer is phenomenal. And, you know, the, the people that we're talking to and the things that we've got to say, and we're blessed that we've got a brand new fleet of trains. You know, we've got a, a you know, a, a business that is, is innovating from you know from a lot of digital activity to at sea ordering you know new places and spaces continues to push the boundaries continues to do more still at the heart of it is delivering a great service to get people to the places that they want to go and of course on some trains you can still deliver that two course meal experience as well roast chicken and vegetables and sponge pudding as the world goes past and the onboard experience of dining was something that they pushed very hard in the 30s wasn't it Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've gone from, you know, sort of silver service diner trains of the past, you know, to, to, to being able to give all of our customers a fantastic level of catering on board. You know, you're travelling at 125 miles an hour and, as you say, you can be having a sit-down meal with wine and, you know, with wine and a pudding and that's fantastic and, you know, we continue to innovate and just making sure that, you know, as you choose to travel by rail it's as enjoyable and as romantic and as productive as it you know as it always has been it's just different and it's modern and it's you know it's it's new the services that you're able to run today as well i mean if we went back to the 30s i think we'd see some pretty slow pretty tedious journeys apart from the crack expresses 
What you have now, though, is you have a much more level playing field. You say that the Hull train that you run is as good as the Highland Chieftain. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, a big part of my role here as commercial director is to make sure that not only do we get as many people as possible travelling by train, but in order to do that, you know, we have to have you know good prices, competitive prices, because people have got more choice now than ever, whether it's, whether it's air, car or even technology. So, you know, making sure that people travel by train is, you know, is, is really important, you know, certainly as we come out of the, you know, the pandemic environment. Uh, and we're fortunate, no longer is rail, you know, a, a, a sort of rich person's experience. You know, anybody can, can travel by rail if they book ahead, you know, with advanced products, you know, they, and they get the quality of experience, the quality of service that they get now is, you know, second to none. When you look back to the 1930s and you look at that sort of pioneering marketing campaigns that they had, what, what do you respect and admire most about what LNER did in those days? Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I, I mean, I reflect back looking at some of the posters that were sort of, you know, particularly around the 1930s, you know, they were sort of hugely iconic sort of artwork styled, um, you know, marketing campaigns really that heroed the great places and spaces up and down the East Coastline. You know, we're blessed as a as a as an operator with some fantastic places, whether it's York, Edinburgh, Newcastle, uh, you know, King's Cross, London. You know, some fantastic places, and you know, they really heroed those in 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 artwork and you know, sort of picturesque formats. And that's something that you know we endeavour to do even now. You know, we we use a lot more photography. Uh, you know, different styles, video and all of those elements that, you know, sort of, uh, you know, part and parcel of the modern way. But, you know, in some ways, the fact that heritage of those posters still exists now and, you know, whether it is artwork on walls and, and all of those things just shows kind of the power and the quality of the things that, you know, were, were, were done back then. And something that we aspire to, to continue and, you know, would hope that, you know, some of the things that we've done now would, you know, might still be on, on walls and, you know, in, in museums in 100 years time. There are some iconic posters, as we've said, some use of things like the Royal Border Bridge in posters and uh, the locations like York and, and Edinburgh. What do you think recently that you've done in marketing stands out in the 21st century like those did in the 20th century? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, what we've done recently is we've, we've slightly reinvented sort of our look and feel. We've just introduced us an iconic red line that, that flows through all of our of our brand brand activity at the moment and and it's really about sort of recreating that link between our advertising and our marketing and and and, and rail reinventing what we've always done which is putting the destinations the people the the places that make up the east coastline at the very heart of what we do but in a much more modern way bold clear straight lines were quite common in the old LNER marketing, weren't they? Particularly around the streamliner trains of the 1930s, the mid-1930s. And of course the Azuma kind of lends itself to that. The, the Azuma looks a little bit like the streamlined locomotives, like Mallard, doesn't it, at the front? Fascinating when you look at Mallard and you, you look at Azuma, the similarities, and it really sort of just demonstrates, I guess, how advanced and ahead of its time Mallard was, that it effectively looks like a 21st century train. That's David Flesher. He's the commercial director of LNER. Well, it's been very interesting comparing the two. This year, of course, the 100th anniversary of the brand first started back in 1923. And we're going to be back with another The Fast Track podcast very soon. So from me, David Dunning, thank you very much for listening. Can I just recommend uh, one part of our Facebook page as well, which I personally very much enjoy, and that's the In the Driver Seat videos, the view from the cab of an Azuma. 
My name's Ashley. I'm the driver for LNER based at Doncaster. Part of the route I drive is between Doncaster and Newcastle. And what you're about to see is a short insight into what this looks like from the driver's point of view.